You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy Pastor Terry's talk titled, God, Where Are You? from the series Master Questions. For more info, check out creekside.org. I uh, graduated from high school and I started working. My dad got me a job at a place called Crown Zellerback Paper Mill. And <clears throat> I uh, made lots of money for a kid that just turned 18. Lots of money. And uh, I was telling somebody recently, if I'd have stayed there, I'd be retired now. Um, but I got to tell you, there's no way in the world that I could have stayed there because I, um, I think about 25 out of 30 uh, days or nights of my first two months there, I worked nights. That means all night. I've never had a problem with working long hours. I can work lots of hours, but all night really bugs me. And uh, I'm an early bed, early to rise. So for me to, uh, even back in my younger days, I was kind of that way as well. I loved getting up early. And so I just, it just didn't make sense to me going to work when everybody else is going to bed and going to bed in the morning when everybody else is going to work. And I just didn't like it. I didn't like to work. A lot of the guys that I worked with, they were, I was kind of a chipper, happy-go-lucky kind of kid. And all of these men that I worked with were pretty unhappy because I'd spent years there. But I just, what I really didn't like was the, the night shift. It was dark. It was just dank, and it was dirty, and I didn't like it. And uh, the, the night shift. But I have great respect because, you know, we have all the EMTs, and we have the police, and we have the firemen, and uh, we have pilots. And we just, there's so many people, store workers, that have to work that shift. And it's always surprising to me when I hear someone say, oh, I just love it. But I don't. But I want to come back to this whole idea because we're going to look at a passage today where we see Jesus. He's working the night shift. And I want you to understand that because we're going to talk, we're, we're, we're going to conclude our series today on questions that the master asks. And I just felt like it'd be good for us to close with this one because we're going to see Jesus working the night shift for us. And I'm so thankful for that. And this question, the questions that we've been dealing with, the first six, are questions that he asks people um, as he was doing his ministry, walking the streets. And he'd ask these straightforward questions to challenge people's thinking, to get them thinking differently about God and who he was and what he was doing for them and why he had come. Move them beyond the conventional wisdom of the day. So he'd ask these great questions. And ultimately, they were to challenge them and to move them forward in their life. But today, Jesus comes to the last question that he asks on earth. And he's not asking you and me. He's asking his father. He's asking his father. And it's really not even a question as much as it is a desperate cry and a prayer because he's on the cross. So let's look at Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 46. It says, from noon until... Three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. So you have to understand, uh, in, in the antiquities of many other cultures, what you will see is they have record of this taking place, that they'll talk about this time when there was darkness that fell over their land. So this wasn't just some kind of total eclipse of the moon in one located area. This was an act of God, where from 12 to 3, it's dark as Jesus is dying on the cross and it says at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema, Sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
It's a powerful question. We get these powerful and precious glimpses of Jesus, the depths of his humanity. Remember, Jesus, while he is God and he's been God eternally, we have this thing called the Trinity of God, the the oneness, the triunity of God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Jesus has always been. We see here this thing called separation or forsakenness. And on the cross, there's probably no greater place that we see the humanity of Jesus than in a couple of statements that he makes. And some of the background and the context of this is, is Jesus made seven final statements on the cross, brief statements during his last hours on the cross. These seven sayings form part of what Christians call this meditation, the seven sayings of Christ that are often talked about and preached about and meditated on during the Passion or the Holy Week of of Easter and, and Good Friday. So these phrases offer, though, a powerful glimpse into the depth of Jesus' suffering to accomplish the redemption for you and for me and for all of humanity and mankind, past, present, and future. They're recorded in the Gospels. In all four of them, there's different statements. Some of them, a couple of them are stated twice, but they're, they're in the Gospels from the time Jesus was on the cross until the time that he died. And they reveal his true divinity but they also show the depths of his humanity because we understand that Jesus was God coming in the flesh to represent God and to redeem and to save mankind. So I want us to look at this question, the son's question. This is the fourth word on the cross. This question that we're going to look at today, it's known as the fourth word on the cross, And the word that they attribute it to is abandonment. What a sad word. Abandonment. Jesus cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now what I want you to kind of get some context and background on concerning this is that throughout the New Testament, Jesus never addressed God anything other than his father really until this place here. It was always Abba. In, in this Aramaic, and, and this word Abba has kind of a papa, a very emotional, a very relational, a very sentimental feel to it. Whenever he talked about his father, remember in, uh, when he's talking about the, the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you address your father, this would have been very unique. Jesus ushers in this whole new thinking. Before Jesus started using the term Father in the New Testament upon his arrival, God was seen as this distant deity, as this powerful, but this unapproachable God out there that you had to revere and you had to really be concerned about. But Jesus comes to the earth and he says, oh, he's so much more. Yes, he is a deity, but I want you to know I am the exact representation of him. And when you see me, you see him. I want you to know that he's like a father. He's like this perfect earthly father that reveals himself that way. He's like this compassionate companion that's always with you. And you can be secure in him and you can be protected by him. But on the cross, what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, Father. He says, my God, my God. In the darkest hours of his suffering, he says, God. So now he's on this cross, and you've got to see this. He's suffering, and he's being taunted. These people around him that have crucified him, and, and the onlookers, probably a lot of Jewish, some Roman people, they're, they're looking at him. 
And they're taunting him and spitting at him and challenge. Come down if you're really the son of God. Isn't it interesting that he's dying for their sins and that's how they're treating him. And then he quotes these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They're really a quotation from Psalm 22, which is a psalm most believe was written by David. Probably when he was on the run, he was being tormented and taunted by the enemies before he became king. And he was oftentimes on the run to protect himself because of the life of King Saul, who wanted to destroy him out of jealousy and fear that he would come and take over. But it's interesting that it's a very prophetic statement by David because it's a picture of what the literal crucifixion took place. And so Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why has forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22. That's important because what he's saying to these people, he says, what I want you to know, understand, hear me in the midst of my pain. This is for you. I am living out today the proclamation, the prophetic proclamation of Psalm 22. You should realize what's going on here. I am the fulfillment of that psalm. But as so many do today, they desired and determined that they would live not only physically but spiritually in that dark moment. And they didn't respond. They didn't choose Jesus the light and to live in that light. Does that bother you? This question? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It bothers me. I don't like it. Because if I don't understand the totality of what's going on here, you know what my thought would be? My God, my God, will you forsake me? Or worse, how many of us have probably believed or felt like God has forsaken us? That's why the Bible becomes so important in terms of context and understanding the bigger picture and the bigger themes of the Bible. Because if you go back, and it's in your notes there, if you read the scripture in Habakkuk 1.13, when God's people, his nation is turning their back on him, this prophet called Habakkuk comes, and he's talking to God, and he's talking about his people, and he gives us great insight into what's taking place here, because he says this, he says, your eyes, God, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And you have to understand that in the Bible, there's, we say, well, the scripture says that God has, uh, nobody has seen God. We say, well, like, what about Genesis 3 when it says that they walked with God in the evening? Well, there's Father God. Remember, we're talking about the Trinity of God. There's three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus has always been, remember, he wasn't born at Bethlehem and showed up and now he's God. He's always been God, always will be. No beginning, no end, along with Father God and God the Holy Spirit. In the process of that, we believe that any manifestation, any declaration of God where he's seen in the Old Testament is what we would call a Christophany or a Theophany, the God, Christ, Christ. He is the one that was always manifest. Nobody's seen the Father. Father cannot be around or look upon sin. That's why Jesus has come. Whenever the Father sees us, he doesn't see us. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what Habakkuk is saying. God, you can't look on this. Paul says it in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he made him, who? Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now think about this, loved ones. 
I don't know about you, but man, when I sin, I go, whoo, I got to get rid of this. I can't walk with it. I can't handle it. I don't like it. It weighs on me. It's heavy. And that's why if I got to go to somebody and say, man, I'm sorry, or I got I to deal with something before the Lord and say, forgive me, I got to get rid of it because it, it just weighs me down. Now think. It says that Jesus, he didn't just take on, he literally become our sin, Paul says. Think of the, think of the sinfulness. I mean, we can't even handle our own. But from the beginning of time until the end of time, literally all of that sin is in Jesus. So you've got this holy, this perfect God who can't even look at any evil without having to judge it or deal with it. See, it's at that moment where it says somehow, someway, in the corridors of heaven, the Father literally had to turn because the nature and the holiness of God cannot allow or behold evil in any way. He literally had to turn and separate himself from his son. And Jesus feels the incredible agony, not only of taking on our sin, but then it's the separation and the isolation from the Father. Never forget, until this time, this three in one, this trinity of God had never been separated. They had been in community for eternity. When you talk to people who have been married for a long time, years or decades, one of the things they always say if they've hardly ever been separated, one of the things that's so hard is to spend a night apart. So think of eternity and this God who says, now I'm going to be separated from my Father. There's a couple of present-day reminders that I want you to be reminded of from this passage. I want you to never forget Jesus works the night shift of your life. See, it's darkness. Darkness came over the whole land. In the middle of the day, it's dark, and Jesus is at work, what? Securing our redemption, our forgiveness of sin, our relationship to the Father. But it's so easy for you and I in the midst of conflict, in the midst of disaster, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of brokenness to do what? In the midst of dark nights of our personal soul, in the midst of darkness of life, what is it easy for us to do? God. God, where are you? Where are you? And so often the darkness of our life can eclipse the life of God in us. Some of us, we experience a physical attack on our health, something that's so uncertain. Maybe it happens to a family member or a close friend. It ain't supposed to happen. Where's God in all of this? Or someone's sin brings a sudden hit on the character of their personage and then their family. And then pretty soon the members of the families, it becomes very embarrassing for them and the rest of the family. And what happens? Innocent members begin to suffer the collateral damage and the, and the concentric circles that begin to move out from the sin of that family member. And all of a sudden we look at them, we listen to them, and they're hardened by it and they have no remorse for it. And we wonder, God, where are you? Are you kidding me? I'm paying for this thing, and they did it. Or maybe the business that you had and started off so promising, and it's heading north, and all of a sudden something happens in the economy, it heads south, and you move quickly from being so prosperous to financial desperation. God, where are you? Or you had a dream that you felt God was in it, and quickly it becomes a nightmare. 
for no apparent reason. God, where are you? Maybe you're facing and suffering and facing something else. In any of these circumstances, the temptation is simply to conclude, God is not there. You've forsaken me. You've left me with this burden, with this problem. How could you do that? When you come to those times, loved ones, it is so important that you never forget that Jesus works the night shift. He was working it here on your behalf, and he's working it today and every day. He never loses track of you. I love what Psalm 121, 3 and 4 says. It says that the God of Israel, Jesus never sleeps nor slumbers. That means, guess what? In those dark and difficult times, if we begin to trust and release to him, you know what he can do? He can begin to take care of everything because he's awake. He's working the night shift. You can rest. Now, I know that's pretty easy to say because there's times when I'm up in the middle of the night too thinking, oh God, what are we going to do here? But there's something so reassuring to know that he's always at work in the night shift. That when you, when he was on the cross, he was at work suffering for humanity. As you and I face our suffering, as we go through difficult times and trials, we begin to feel isolated and abandoned. Guess what? Jesus knows our pain. He's been there. He's done that. And the promise is he will be with you. It was during the Vietnam War that a country church pastor heard that one of the boys from his church had just died in battle, knowing the impact it would have on his family. He went to this family as soon as he had heard and didn't know what in the world he would say, but he went there and he knocked on the door and the father came and greeted him and they went in and sat down and he could tell the father was definitely broken and beat up and told a disarray and had his head down and the pastor said, what a good pastor, I don't know what to say to you, I just want to come and encourage and pray. And all of a sudden, the father takes out the telegram that let him know that his son is dead. And he looks at the pastor in a very defiant way, mad, upset, angry way. And he said, where was God when my son died? The pastor thought for a moment, didn't know what to say, sure didn't want to say the wrong thing. And he looks at the man and he says, our heavenly father was in the same place when his son died, when your son died. And see, loved ones, we've got to remember that. Sometimes we think our pain, which is so great, and I would never want to diminish anybody's pain and difficulty, but sometimes we forget that our Heavenly Father has experienced the pain of loss and brokenness and death just like we have. The big difference is, is He did it for you. He did it for me. And sometimes we forget God doesn't exist to spare us from all of life's grief and pain. That's not his call. Does he sometimes? Absolutely. But sometimes we can begin to expect it in a way that is unreasonable because we live in this fallen world and with sin. With his own son, Jesus, he didn't intervene with some great miracle to relieve Jesus of the condemnation and the destruction that was taking place. Why? Because he knew there was a higher calling, a greater cause, and it was simply this. I will not destroy his enemies now so that Jesus can destroy our enemies later and for eternity. 
God the Father knew that he had to go through this pain. He had to suffer and he had to die so he could experience the power of the resurrection so that the enemies of death and sin would no longer reign over us and we could have the ultimate hope for our lives because Jesus was willing to work the night shift for you and for me. And today, hear me, hear me, this is important. Jesus never causes your suffering. I'm not saying that. But suffering comes, tragedy comes, difficult times comes. And while God may not ever get you through them, he will always walk with you through them. He won't remove them from you just like he did for his son, but he will take you through them and he will walk with you in them and through them. And that's what we can trust because that's what happens here. Second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus took on what we couldn't take on. Galatians 3.13 says this, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, Jesus became sin and the curse of sin for us so that we could experience forgiveness and eternal life. He took our place because in the, in the schematic of God, if somebody doesn't die for sin, if Jesus, the perfect God representation, doesn't die for us, we do. See, Jesus told us in John 14, 1 through 6, that he not only came to show us the Father, but to make a way for us to the Father. He said, I come that I would make a way. And I want you that as you see me, guess what? You're seeing the Father. And now, as he's, he's getting ready to check out with his disciples, he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to go prepare a place for you so that where I go, you may be also. And see, that's the purpose of Jesus is coming and dying for us. Our sins separated us from God the Father. And just like Jesus became separated here, abandoned, forsaken by God the Father, he did it for us. Why? Guess what? Now we no longer have to be forsaken. We no longer have to have God's back turned against us because of what Jesus did. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus came, and now we get to live in this new and living way. For those of you that are kind of Bible scholars and theologians, you'll recognize this theological happening with a term in theology called the substitutionary death for you and for me. Because if you remember the Old Testament, remember all those sacrifices that took place where people would bring sacrifices and the priest would sacrifice them on the altar? Well, that was a, this is a great picture of this. John said it in John chapter 1. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the fulfillment of that right here where Jesus does this substitutionary theological thing takes place where he says, I'm dying for you so you don't have to. When we transition now, we transition from life to life. 1 Peter 2, 24, he even said this. He says, listen, Jesus took our sins in his body on the cross so that we could live. He substituted himself for you and for me. So this cry of abandonment that Jesus gives out, my God, my God, gives us a glimpse into the inner suffering of Christ on the cross for us. But hear me, loved ones, his greatest agony wasn't physical. I'm sure that Jesus, as they nailed the spikes into his wrists and into his feet, 
I am sure there were statements made. There were groanings that could have been heard. But we never hear him complain about the pain. We do hear him complain about the separation. As all of a sudden, the, the sin of the world is placed on him and in him. This perfect heavenly father who has never been separated from his son separates from him. So he's feeling this anguish of soul on this dark day. This would have been Jesus' darkness of soul moment. I find it interesting. Leprosy didn't intimidate Jesus. Storms never frightened him. Guess what? What terrified him, though, was being out of fellowship with his father. That's where we hear this statement and this declaration. I wonder if because we have become so accustomed to being out of touch with Father God, I wonder if that isn't the reason that the things that terrify us, like a bounce check, a wayward child, not getting a promotion. We get the phone call for a medical report. You fill in the blank for whatever it is. See, Jesus had faith for all these major things that frighten us. But he was terrified by the very thing that isn't on most humans' radar, which is a relationship and connection and closeness with Father God. Never forget, Jesus took on for you so you don't have to take on what you were supposed to. I want you to remember too, remember in the dark what Jesus spoke to you in the light. There's a lot of things we don't know, huh? I mean, there's so many things. I say this all the time. You know, I knew more coming out of Bible college than I ever do now. And it's not really true that I know more. What, the, problem, the big issue is, is I just don't know. Now I know how much I really don't know and understand. It's a big difference. But there's a lot of things we don't know. I was reading recently that the honeybee, did you know that the honeybee is kind of a, an aeronautical uh, uh, question mark? They don't know why. Like a honeybee. Its wings really aren't big enough to be able to support it to fly when it gets loaded down with pollen. But interestingly, when it's loaded down with pollen, it can still fly. But they don't know why. Isn't it great what you can learn at Creekside on a Sunday morning? <laughs> don't you just love it? So you come to Creekside, hey, we learned about bees and why they can't fly. We don't, they don't know. And it's interesting. But there's things, loved ones, that because of God that we do need to know. There's some things we can know, and there's some things that we need to make sure that we know in this Bible. That's why the words that God wants to give us in our life, that he wants to be speaking into your life so that when you go through these dark times, guess what? In the dark nights of your soul, you never forget that he's working that night shift and that whatever he told you in the light of day, you'll never forget in the darkest of nights. Now, here's a great one, kind of. Romans 8. A lot of us are familiar with it. If you look at Romans 8, you begin at about verse 28. See if you've ever heard this. For we know, see this is one of those things that you can know and you need to know. For we know that all things work together for good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Oh man, is that me? I don't know, do you love God? 
If you love God, then you're called according to his purpose. As a matter of fact, let me tell you this today. If you're sitting here, you are called according to his purpose. Even if you say, well, I don't believe in God. That's all right. You're still called according to his purpose, but you've got to walk in it and make that decision. But, you know, I, I can't stand that verse sometimes. Because usually, you know when I hear it? I'm going through a dark night. I'm going through a difficult time. And some beamed up person comes and goes, hey, you know, God causes all things to work together for good. <laughs> and I just want to go, I know that. But believing it's a little bit harder than just knowing it, isn't it? But hear me, loved ones, we've got to know it. We've got to believe it. Because see, here's, the, here's kind of the, the second part that's important. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you, do you, do you know why you go through stuff? Is it to make you a better mama, daddy? a better business person, a better whatever? No? Uh, you know, God doesn't allow me to go through things to make me a better preacher. I know some of you wish he would, but it's really, it's not, it's not, what he, it's not why he does it. Let me tell you why you go through some of these things, loved ones. It just says it right here. Oh, to be conformed to the image of his son. Anything you go through, and hear me, I, I don't have a theology that God goes, oh, I'm going to make them like Jesus, so I think I'm going to, oh, let's give them a little bit of uh, cancer. That should probably do it. Are you kidding me? God is never our executioner. He's our healer. He's the lover of our soul. But hear me, everything you face is for this reason here, that you'll become conformed and you'll begin to look more like Jesus every day in every way. And this is what I know about that. The more you look like Jesus, the better parents you'll become, the better preacher I'll become, the better husband you'll become, the better student you'll become when you become more like Jesus. That is the purpose of everything we face. And it's not, he doesn't say in some things, I hope things, a few, he says in all things. One of the brothers in our church who just was uh, diagnosed with cancer a few months ago and just recently had his surgery and he was able to return back to our Friday morning men's group with these men and we were talking afterwards and he's just, he's been such a blessing and encouragement to me because of the way he's, he's just always, you know, God's taking care of me. I just trust Jesus and in the darkest night of his soul, it's just all been about Jesus and his faith and how God's taken care of him and after our meeting yesterday, he talked a few, uh, Friday, we talked a few minutes, and he goes, you know, PT, I've been, and I've always told him, I said, I'm just so proud of you, brother, that, you know, I can see Jesus in you, and I just, I'm just so thrilled for you, because he's coming closer to Jesus, and he looks, and he says, you know, PT, uh, I just got some really bad news uh, the day before yesterday, and he talked about how his company had let him go because of his time. And he goes, you know, I just, man, I just panicked. I just, all this faith that I had, and I'm, I'm telling you, it's not his words exactly, but, and then he says, you know something? It wasn't too long when I just remembered what Jesus has been doing for me. How he's healing me, how he's taking care of me. I get to come and meet with these men on Friday morning and be encouraged by them and to be built with them and hear the life of Jesus. And he says, you know, I'm good, I'm doing good. Can I tell you what that is? 
That is a man who has not forgotten in the darkness what Jesus has said and has been doing in his life in the light. And loved ones, that's what you need to know. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And that's you. And that's me. Last thing I want to just quickly get through. Don't doubt, but always default to the love of the Father who loves you. I know it's hard not to doubt. It almost sounds here like Jesus is doubting. My God, my God, why? And, and, and doubts are all right. God is not intimidated by your doubts, okay? I, don't, 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 don't give me that fake faith thing because I doubt. I can't tell you how many times I've doubted. I, I look back over the years here. I could tell you story upon story of when I just was ready to quit here. And probably tomorrow I'll be ready to quit again. Uh, you know, we'll see how third service goes. But, you know, that sounds bad, but it's, but it's so true. I'm so up and down. And I know God's there. And I know he loves me, but, but I can never forget to default, not to my feelings and my faith, but to the love of God. You know, I, I, one of the reasons I have so many young guys working here is because I can't do anything with computers except word process and email. If I got a problem, I'll call Dustin or, or someone, I'll call him, but Dustin's really good at them. So we just got these new computers recently that are kind of configured around the office for everybody. And I don't know anything about them, so he sets mine up and he goes, oh, by the way, PT, if or when you screwed up, I mean, when you, when you have a problem, uh, there's this button you push and it just kind of defaults and takes you back to the beginning of where you started. And I said, thank you, God and Dustin, because I just, I just need that. And, 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 and I want the love of God to become the default button for your life. And never doubt that he loves you because you go through something. Well, Jesus did. I, I don't know. There, there, there must have been this, this part of humanity that, God, where are you going, even though he knew what he was doing. But remember I told you about the seven words on the cross? The fourth one was the one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Abandonment. You know what the seventh word is? The seventh word, they, 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 they give it the term reunion. Because his final words on the cross before he dies are this, found in Luke 23, 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father. <laughs> he doesn't say God. He defaults back to Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. I love that. In the dark night of Jesus' soul, God, and then all of a sudden, probably wasn't that much longer, within a couple of hours, he goes, that's right, that's right. I know what the Father spoke to me in eternity past when we come up with this scheme of saving and redeeming the world. He's speaking to the Father. And in death, he lived the very way that he lived each day. If you read Jesus, he's always saying, well, I just want to please my Father. Everything that I do, I hear from the Father, and I do it. I please my Father. And he comes back on the cross, and he never forgets. He defaults back to the relationship with his Father, and he says, I'm in your hands. I want to live like that, don't you? Where everything you face, anything you go through, it's... I'm just going to breathe my last breath and just say, Lord, here I am. You got my money. You got my home. You got my kids. 
You got me. You got my job. In the book, The Whisper Test, a story is told about this little guy. He's telling this story about how he was born with a cleft palate, and when he started school, the kids let him know that he was different because he had this misshapen lip and crooked nose and lopsided teeth and, and garbled speech. The other kids would say, man, hey, what happened to your lip? And he would tell, this, tell them this. He'd say, you know what, I, I fell on a piece of glass uh, because it just seems so much more acceptable to say that he fell and had an accident than to say that he was born different and deformed. And over time, it wasn't long that he began to really believe that nobody else could love him outside of his family. Well, he had a second grade teacher whose name was Mr. Leonard. He was short, round, and extremely jolly, and all the students liked him because he was just a lot of fun. Well, annually, students, and most of you have gone through this too, that have a hearing test. Well, Mr. Leonard would always give the hearing test, and how they would do it back in that day is uh, the the students would stand against the door and just cover one of their uh, ears, and Mr. Leonard or the teacher would sit at the desk, and he would just say something innocuous to them. You know, he'd ask them, you know, is the sky blue, and they'd have to repeat it back, or do you have new shoes? And if they heard him, they would say, do I have new shoes? Well, this, this little boy, he, he, he was waiting and for his turn, and he goes up there, and he stands, and, and he heard teachers say a bunch of different things to the students. And as he's standing there waiting for the words, he said in the, in the book, he said there were words that God must have put in his mouth because they were seven words that changed my life. So Mr. Leonard looked at him and in his whisper, he said this, I wish you were my little boy. The little boy said this later in his life as he's writing this story, he says those words changed my life because the first time in my life I knew I was chosen. First time in my life, I knew somebody loved me beyond my deformity. And I thought, you know, isn't that really what love is about? It's about being chosen. You know the feeling. Back in grade school, you know when you were chosen, and whether the beginning or the middle of pack, or even the last. But you know when you weren't chosen the last, you just loved it. You just loved being first or second or third because you were wanted. A lot of you in this room, you know, you were chosen by that little, wonderful, precious little spouse next to you. They chose you. And you just go, wow, they chose me. See, never forget, always default to the love of Jesus. Because it says in Ephesians 1, he says that you have been accepted. You have been chosen in the beloved. Why? Because of everything that Jesus has done. In the midst of all your deformities, in the midst of all your imperfections, in the midst of whatever it is that you would say diminishes you, and whatever you're experiencing, the dark night of your soul today, loved ones, guess what? This is what I want you to hear. You're chosen. You're significant. 